Pastor Thurber, thank you for inviting me to share with you and with this congregation the final homily in your camp meeting series, Loving God and Loving People. Loving God and Loving People can be a platitude. I love everybody. It's just that neighbor kid that rides his bike in my plants I can't stand. <laughs> the real hard work of loving people, we learn from the scripture that was read today. Our scripture reading takes only four verses to summarize life in the earliest Christian community. This passage serves as one of the many summary descriptions that Luke uses to cover events to provide a transition to the next stage of the story he's trying to give. The summary description functions like a back-in-the-day kind of statement. Back in the day, we saw many baptisms. Or a remember-when statement. Remember when the demographics brought diasporic Jews from all over. Remember when so many foreign languages in Jerusalem started rumors of an Aramaic-only movement in Judea. Or summaries stand in place of an I'll never forget kind of statement. I'll never forget how everyone remained devoted to the apostles' teaching and to daily breaking the Eucharistic bread. Back in the day, the potlucks filled up with lamb, pomegranates, dates, hummus, breads of all kind, not to mention fresh water and fine wines. In those early days, communal living brought a peace and prosperity of its own. Luke tells us that back then, no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. I mean, there was not a needy person among them. For as many owned lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Our text summarizes the good old days of the early church. Or does it really? Summary statements in their haste to provide story transition often distort complex realities. If no member of the early Jerusalem church claimed private ownership of any possessions, then why in the very next verse we read that Barnabas sold not all the fields that belonged to him, but he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Are, are you with me this morning? Why in chapter 12, verse 12, Peter decides to go to Mary's house, the mother of John Mark, where disciples gathered and prayed. If there was not a needy person among them, then what event caused the evangelist to report that Hellenist widows complained against Hebrew widows that they neglected to share food? Are you with me? Moreover, if those days brought a peace and prosperity of its own, then why the need 
to found the office of deacon to resolve racist disputes. Don't forget, deacons weren't founded to take offering. They were founded because of racism in the early church. Disputes among the Hellenists and the Hebraists. Why the need for a Jerusalem council where disputes before, during, and after the session produced no clear vote, despite the questionable minutes of the meeting suggesting otherwise. We know how people can work up minutes. The decision on who to include in the commune Gentile franchise resulted in Luke offering one version of the meeting's minutes in Acts chapter 15 and Paul giving a different version of them in, Acts cha in Galatians chapter 2. Read those. Summary statements distort complex realities. But worse yet, when taken with wooden literalism, summary statements tempt the church to say more than it actually does. In other words, they romanticize the church's past. The nostalgia cemented in a summary statement seduces later generations to swoon over the church's yesteryear glory. When this happens, the church's ministries and mission degrade into speech making and word gaming, objectives disputing battle over what has been and how the stodgy past sets the standard for what should be. Mission activism turns into meaningless arguments about doctrinal formulas. In this state, instead of selling private property in order to live communally and support the needy, we quietly ask those with massive property to leave some money with the church when they die. If you can't say amen, say ouch. But there's a good and bad side to summary statement descriptions. Even though they entice us to nostalgia, we still need them. We need them because they portray mission continuity. The evangelist adopts this literary device of summary in both of his volumes, Luke and Acts, to connect the ministry of Jesus with the ministry of the apostles, to bind the mission of the man from Nazareth with the mission of the disciples in Jerusalem, to link the life of Christ with the life of the church. Look how Luke deploys a summary description in the fourth chapter of Acts and then compare how he applies it in the fourth chapter of the gospel that carries his name. In Luke chapter 4, recounting Jesus' inaugural sermon at Nazareth, Luke writes, when he came to, the synagogue, to Nazareth, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you want to know the heart of Jesus' Galilee ministry, it's summarized in Luke chapter 4. And if you want to know how the church continued his ministry, it's summarized in Acts chapter 4. Luke wants us to hear the heartbeat of Jesus' ministry in the mission of the church. And so he writes with great power, the apostles gave testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. From these two chapters, 
We detect the message, mission, and ministry of Jesus continues in the apostolic mission of the church. Christian discipleship means being a member of a multi-personal, multi-faceted, multi-dimensional communal life that understands itself as a model society, contrasting and redeeming the society around it. This is the good news in our passage this morning. Perhaps awareness of the ambiguous function of memory statements and summary statements guard us against romantic longing for past glory. But more than that, it fortifies us for an effective mission in the present world. Our question is what continues in our service today here in the Inland Empire from the ministries of Jesus and the apostles and the service they offered in their day. How do we embody the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the apostles today? This morning, consider how our text highlights three simple ways the ministry of Jesus continues in the ministry of the apostolic church. Consider how by imitating the apostolic ministry, we today continue the ministry of Jesus. I'll say them briefly, just in case I have to cut short, in our proclamation, in our practice, in our being provoked by the same spirit. First note that continuity between the ministry of Jesus and that of the apostles occurs in their proclamation. The apostles proclaimed a risen Lord. Now this means that the early Christians, when they preached, it was truly the word of Jesus. They were not reporting on a past deed that he rose again, but they were actually the vocal way in which a risen Lord communicated to the people of his day. Are you understanding the difference? Preaching that echoes and reiterates the same testimony like an office bureaucrat who repeats a policy manual out of failure to act with the authority they have to solve a problem contains a short shelf life. If you think there are amazing facts of the Bible that need to be reported, you have missed what preaching the gospel is all about today. The scripture says with great power the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This means they maintained a new walk with Christ. Yes, they report the crucifixion, but because he rose from the tomb, they look for surprising encounters with the Lord. The very proclamation that he spoke in his life on earth continues in the word that they proclaim from the one who was once dead but who now lives forevermore. One of my students, I took, us, took a, a guided study tour to the Festival of the Laity in 2011, and one of my students, after hearing a world-presiding bishop preach at the Festival of the Laity, said to me, Dr. Jackson, I guess some people have 40 years walking with Christ and others walk one year 40 times over. If those simple teachings that you learned when you first came to Christ still cause you to ask the same questions decades later, then you are walking one year 40 times over. 
if someone is overheard imitating the prayers that you pray because your stock petitions and praises are predictable, then you are walking one year 40 times over. If Christ lives, then the one thing we expect from the living that we don't expect from the dead is surprise. Something new. Christ acts in the world. Christ does a new thing in the world. And the proclamation of the gospel offers a new word from Christ with great power. And this continues in the ministry of Jesus and those who follow him today. Not only in proclamation, but in practice. The ministry of Jesus continued in the apostles' ministry in their practice. In the early socialist Christian commune. Ooh, you hear that? The disciples provided a home where Christ could reside. Not only in their proclamation, but in their practice. The Jerusalem Christians saw in the ministry of Jesus those saving practices that reached beyond personal piety and individual soul salvation. They modeled a living community founded upon Jesus' inaugural sermon when he proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. They heard the jubilee call for a massive redistribution of wealth. So the Jerusalem apostolic community, where no one claimed private ownership of any possession, advanced, that's aspirational, <laughs> advanced the way God bestows power and freedom for an active life in a free community. The homeless Jesus, with no place to lay his head, now finds a home with his vibrant communist followers. These migrating disciples, diasporic Hebrew and Hellenist followers, remained faithful to Jesus' witness. They practiced the Jubilee and made their money become a social force to change the world around them. Nothing short of a radical communal embodiment was sufficient as a witness. In that wonderful book, An Asian Theology of Liberation, Aloysius Pierce writes, a Christian is a person who has made an irrevocable option to follow Jesus. This option necessarily coincides with the option to be poor. But the option to be poor becomes a true following of Jesus only to the extent that it is also an option for the He said that criticizing monasteries that wouldn't engage the political realities, but recognized if we win Asia for Christ, it has to not just be poor, but it has to be poor for the poor. That's what following Jesus looks like. It is Matthew's gospel that gave the account of the last judgment, where the king would say, truly I say, when did you do this to the least of these? And it was Luke's community that answered the call. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. You cannot be a Christian all by yourself. If you find no other chum than the poor person in desperate need of help, then for Christ's sake, you want to, them to be by your side. By receiving them, you find communion with Christ. Pope Gregory, he said it this way. When we minister what is necessary to the indigent, we bestow not what is ours, but what rightly belongs to them. In fact, we pay a debt of justice, not an act of mercy. 
Christian faith goes hand in hand with social justice. It goes into the voting booth, into the investment portfolio, and the nonviolent marches of protest against social evil. So in our text today, the ministry of Jesus continues in the apostolic church. It continues in their proclamation. It continues in their practice. And moreover, it continues provoked with the same spirit that moved them. When we return to Luke chapter 4, we discover in verse 14 that just before Jesus preached his inaugural sermon, the evangelist writes, Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. Jesus' ministry was a Spirit-filled and Spirit-led ministry. And when we go back to Acts chapter 4, we discover in verse 31 that just before the evangelist described the early Christian community, he writes these words. When they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. The apostles' ministry was a spirit-filled, spirit-led ministry. You know what's strange for me today? It's strange that Karl Marx looked to the early Christian community to find an answer to the world's social problems, and many clergy looked to the business community to find answers to the church's social problems. Marx looked to the early Christian community, but he didn't look hard enough. He saw the material workings of that community, and he was right about that. But he missed the dialectic of spirit at work within them. The work commissioned by the Spirit of God goes beyond a merit-filled ministry, glossed over with pious words like grace. Contrast a spirit-filled ministry with a merit-filled ministry. They operate on different authority. Something different is at work. And this difference is subtle. It's nuanced. And if you miss it, you find yourself deceived by the counterfeit. Karl Barth, a Swiss theologian, says it this way. Indeed, the spirit of the good, the true, and the beautiful, and even the spirit of love or the spirit of goodness married to holiness in which Man has a share, more or less, is certainly the evil spirit when taken as a substitute for the Holy Spirit. To make that other the conqueror over sin is to put a fox in charge of geese. The world does a lot of good. But if that good is the substitute for the Holy Spirit, we flatline, my friends. No, the early Christian community was not utopia. But what is utopic? The capitalistic messianic vision is utopic. The early Christian community was community under the pastoral care of the spirit of Christ. The same Christ whose spirit is right here amongst us today. Luke, an eyewitness 
to that community saw them utterly stripped of all good so that there was nothing else left but to cast themselves at the feet of God. And when our text says they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. You know what that is? That's symbolically expressing how these vulnerable, risk-taking disciples put it all on the line for Christ. Members of the Calamasa Seventh-day Adventist church family, the takeaway from this message is simply this. To love God and love people, carry on the apostolic ministry that Lucre tells us about in his gospel. Get rid of a nostalgic non-relationship with a cosmic Christ. Look for the real and risen Christ to surprise you, to come at you in ways you didn't expect. I thought I understood it all, and God's spirit is nudging me in a way that has shocked me into a new and engaged reality with life. Find community with the poor. Strip yourself of meritorious appraisals and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I promise you that in the name of Christ, that with great power, you will give your testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace will be upon you all. Thank you. God be with you. So I like this song that we're about to sing. Um, because for one, it speaks to, it ties in with the message, but it speaks to the pervasive disease that exists in this country, which is racism, intolerance, bias, you know, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we all are grown up in a certain way and we are all, we all have our implicit bias. So. I like this song because it takes that and, and puts it in sort of a, a medical reference where we need God's medicine. We need the medicine that is God's spirit in our lives so that we can live better, be more accepting, be more loving. So that is the message of the song. They're going to have the lyrics on the screen so you can see it. This is called The Medicine. There's a sickness here that threatens to divide us And we're all afraid to say its name out loud But Lord, I know that you can heal us of this virus So we need you, we need you right now And there's a darkness here that's dangerous and aggressive getting harder every day to shake its power but Lord I know that you can free us of oppression so we need you we need you right now cause we don't know what to do 
So we turn our eyes to you And we've run out of words to say So won't you come and have your way You can save us from ourselves Before our wounds hurt someone else We need you Does it mean to have compassion for another? How can I claim to love a God that I can't see? If I can find the will to harm or kill my brother Cause he neglected to look like me I can speak the words of men and songs of angels I can give all my possessions to the poor But if your love can move the mountains of my hatred then I missed you and I need you so much more Cause we don't know what to do So we turn our eyes to you And I've run out of words to say So if you come and have it your way You can save me from myself Before my wounds hurt someone else I need you now Cause we don't know what to do So we turn our eyes to you And we've run out of words to say So won't you come and have your way You can save us from ourselves
The Hebrew priest said, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Asian prophet said, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. The Irish poet said, may the rose rise to meet you. May the wind blow at your back. May the sun shine warmly on your face. May the rain fall softly on your fields. May God hold you in the palm of his hand. And the African-American preacher said, God, go before us to lead us, behind us to protect us, beneath us to uphold us, above us to shelter us, beside us to be companion. Most of all, go in our hearts. Fill us with Christ's love until we meet again. Thank you.